Well, it was June 1996, a little over 10 years ago. A mild breeze blew on one of those summer days at the beginning of the summer that precedes the suffocating summer that you knew was coming. I was standing near the curb talking to my neighbor, Steve Jackson, as his youngest son, Tyler, was playing basketball in the driveway. He rebounded, dribbled, shot, then rebounded again, and in the imaginary competition taking place there in their driveway, Tyler acted as both player and commentator. As we talked about our mutual plans for the summer, the front door opened and Steve's wife, Amy, yelled out, Dinner in five minutes. Steve turned and in a quiet voice said to his son, Son, go inside and wash up for dinner. Our conversation resumed and so did the dribbling. Then, just as Tyler poised himself for that final three-point victory shot that would awe the crowd, once again, Steve turned and in a calm, quiet voice said, Son, are you choosing to disobey? Well, there was no question as to whether or not the father's words had been heard or whether the call to dinner had been heard. They had. And as Tyler stood there on the brink of fame, knees bent, arm cocked, body aligned to the basket, his head slowly turned to his father. It was clear there were no neutral answers. From that point forward, any action, any word, even inaction, was a deliberate decision. The line had been drawn. Are you choosing to disobey? In the many years since then, when I've had the presence of mind to use that verse with my own children, I've been stunned at how clearly it frames the issue and defines the response. Are you choosing to disobey? Well, all of Judea was buzzing. They were buzzing about this teacher, this prophet, this healer, this performer of miracles. And while not all the miracles are represented in John's Gospels, I think it's worthwhile to recount just some of those that John has reported to us in the prior passages. First, Jesus started with the unusual. In John 2, Jesus turns water into wine. Well, curious, perhaps even entertaining, but quite possibly the ravings of a few people who had had too much to drink. Certainly not threatening to anyone. Next, the unconfirmed. In John 4, Jesus heals the son of a nobleman from Capernaum. Pure coincidence and easily dismissible. If you'll remember, he didn't even go to the man's house. Maybe he didn't really heal him. And there was no clear proof that Jesus had done the healing. Moving on, we came to the unmerited. In John 5, Jesus heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Well, this is getting a little closer to home. And by home, I mean to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. As long as this Jesus keeps his antics out in the countryside, fine. But not in Jerusalem and certainly not on the Sabbath. The unusual, the unconfirmed, the unmerited, then the unexplainable. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Not only is this Jesus gaining a large following, he's performing miracles on a grand scale, on a scale nobody has ever done before. There's no doubt that things are getting serious. 
His following and popularity are growing. Perhaps this Jesus bears closer watching. He excites the people. The confrontation moves closer to home yet again with the undeniable. In John 9, Jesus heals a man blind since birth just outside the temple. There's no doubt as to the identity of man. They had seen him many times on their way into the temple themselves. There's no question that a miracle had been performed. It had. And once again, he violated the Sabbath rules. The evidence was there. There was no debating that this Jesus was performing many miraculous signs. In John 10.32, Jesus says, Many good works I have shown you from the Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being man, make yourself God. Can you feel him closing in? They could. It began out in the countryside, in a little out-of-the-way places like Galilee and Capernaum. And with each step, with each miracle, Jesus draws closer and closer to a direct confrontation. Well, we have the unusual, the unconfirmed, the unmerited, the unexplainable, and finally, the unforgivable. In John 11, Jesus does an amazing miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead. This was the last straw. Jesus had performed the miracle of miracles. He had demonstrated power over death. And he had done it close to home in Bethany, what we'd call a suburb of Jerusalem. And now all of Jerusalem is talking about him. And the raising of Lazarus was one of those no-neutrality events. Jesus did it in broad daylight, in front of many witnesses, and by calling on the Father, he made it clear there was divine intervention. Those who saw it had to take sides. Jesus confronts us. He doesn't give us the opportunity for neutrality. In John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.19.20, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no one comes to the Father but by me. No neutrality. So, what would you think? What would you do if you were there? Verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Some would say, Oh, let me back up. But why? Why did this miracle result in belief when others did not? Some would say it was because Jesus had demonstrated the power over death. But this wasn't the first time. Luke reports in Luke 7 and 8 of two other instances. Some would say it was the grand finale of a growing body of evidence after performing many other miracles, some of which we've reviewed this morning. But I believe... What impacted the people the most in this particular miracle was that they, and they saw the Lord 
and they saw the miracle in the context of our Lord's heart. Twice in the text, we see reference to how deeply Jesus was moved. You see, we don't have a cold and personal God. Then as now, it's not the act of compassion or mercy that demonstrates the gospel, but the motive and the heart behind the action. It's when we're reflecting God's love that the true gospel is heard. But belief was not the only reaction. In John eleven forty six, we read of another reaction. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Why? Why did they go to the Pharisees? Well, perhaps it was doubt. It's only natural they'd go to some of the leaders of the time, the scholars, the religious authorities, and ask their opinion. How does he do these things? Where does his power come from? Maybe we should consider who this Jesus really is. Maybe this Jesus really is the Messiah. Or perhaps it was an opportunity to convince the Pharisees. Some who already believed may have seen this as clear evidence and felt now they're going to have to believe. They're going to have to take Jesus seriously. And indeed, they did. Or was the motive more sinister? This Jesus has gone too far. We have to put a stop to him. Verse 48 tells us, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Whatever the motive of the messengers, the message was clear. So on hearing this amazing story of bringing someone back to life, what did they do? Verse 47 Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Some translations say council. It's important to note that the Sanhedrin or the council was made up of representatives from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not unlike the British Parliament, kind of a house of lords and a house of commons. These two groups hailed from different backgrounds. Each held different beliefs and views. Many historians say that they had great disdain for each other. Both groups thought the other group was consistently wrong. The Sadducees were typically of a higher ruling class, more a political party than than a religious group, and they were known for their arrogance. They only studied the Torah, the first five of the books. They did not study the prophets or the historical books like Kings and Chronicles. And as highlighted, when Paul was brought before the council, they did not believe in the resurrection at all. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a religious party. They were known for their piety and study of all the scriptures and considered themselves experts in the interpretation and found evidence in scripture to support resurrection. They were sure they had the right interpretation and they resented anyone, especially the Sadducees, who may have seen it different. And Jesus threatened them both. Two things are clear. These men recognized Jesus was performing miraculous signs and they were bent on stopping him. Stunning, isn't it? He's performing miraculous signs and they want to stop him. The facts were not in question. The religious leaders no longer considered discrediting or exposing Jesus as a solution to their problem. There's no evidence in the scripture that there was any discussion as to the meaning of this latest miracle. There was no discussion as to the source of authority because Jesus clearly called upon God 
in performing the miracle. The lack of theological debate is even more surprising when you consider that the last miracle dealt with resurrection. This is an issue that deeply divided the two groups, but they found a cause to come together on. No, the entire discussion was focused on the threat to their position and requirement to end it. But exactly what was this threat that had them so afraid of Jesus? Well, there's really two. The first threat was official and political in nature. Jewish law stated that the high priest was high priest for life. However, in reality, the high priest served at the pleasure of Rome. In the passage, we read Caiaphas was high priest that year. Josephus tells us that Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, had appointed three people in rapid succession before finally installing Joseph Caiaphas. And he had held, since held that position for 18 years. We can infer from that that Caiaphas was a shrewd political animal. And the popularity of this Jesus was a potential concern to the stability and the status quo. And any threat to stability was a threat to Rome. Their fears reported here in John 48 that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Sadducees were wealthy, aristocratic, and in control. This Jesus posed a threat to Caiaphas personally and to what they called Hamakam, hopefully that's the right pronunciation, the place, their temple. Things were going too well to allow a Galilean carpenter to come along and mess it up for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 50 tells us that Caiaphas clearly understood the political solution. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Did you hear it? Let me read that again. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. What was Caiaphas doing here? He was appealing to their own selfish interest. Oh, sure. He wraps it up in a patriotic banner of protection of the whole nation. But the message is clear. This Jesus is going to mess up your life. And we shouldn't be surprised at the cold, calculated response. It happens every day in corporate America. In fact, it happens so often in the workplace that we even have an expression for it. We call it throwing someone under the bus. Did you ever hear that one? <laughs> when someone threatens our status, our project, our opportunity, our place in the pecking order, we attempt to discredit them. We want to undermine them. If necessary, we want them fired. We want them removed from the formula. Oh, we don't actually want to kill them. But the intent to harm in order to protect our selfish interests is just as strong and just as sinful. The second threat was an unofficial threat and religious in nature. This Jesus was running around teaching with authority. He was challenging the academic knowledge, interpretation, and knowledge of the Pharisees. If this Jesus wasn't stopped, he would ruin everything. He was cleansing the temple, telling Nicodemus he had to be born again, throwing out the Pharisaical rules, healing the sick, forgiving the sinners, and usurping their power, 
changing them from esteemed teachers and community leaders to mere servants. So you see, this wasn't about miracles. This wasn't about evidence. This was about pride. This was about position. This was about politics. But above everything else, this was about submission of the will. In John 10, 25, Jesus said, The works that I do in the Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Just like us, they didn't believe because they didn't want to believe. Because belief in Jesus demands a change in the status quo, doesn't it? Let me stop here for a minute and make an observation. Have you ever noticed that and I'm very guilty of this, when we want to criticize someone, we don't seek out a calm, neutral influence who can provide objective feedback. No. We seek out people who share our anger, share our frustration, share our biases and prejudices. People who share our disdain for the object of our wrath. That person, that boss, that friend or work associate that we don't like. We're full of self-righteous indignation and we want justice. We want judgment. And we want it on our terms. We go to the person in the office who we know is carrying the same grudge or whisper to that person in church who's had a similar tiff or call a friend or a family member who we know will join in. And bad behavior, cutting cynicism, Grumbling, character assassination. Well, it's just so much easier, and it just feels so right when we surround ourselves with people who will get down in the mud with us. After all, if we agree, then we must be justified in our anger. Proverbs 15:12 says, "A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise." So, what did they do? They assemble a quorum of like-minded men, men who share the same fears, men who stand to lose something as well. One commentator says, you know, they probably opened with a prayer, much like we do, before getting down to business. And the discussion probably started with how it was their job to protect the people. Very benevolent. The NIV translates it as, what are we accomplishing Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. In other words, nothing we've tried has worked. Every time we set set a trap for him, he turns it back on us. We're getting nowhere fast. You see, in their eyes, Jesus was a threat of monumental proportions. From their point of view, this Jesus wanted to destroy their status, destroy their position, destroy their temple, destroy their traditions, their relationships with people and government, basically everything they held sacred. And they were right. And he wants to do the same to you and me today. Like the Pharisees, Jesus is not what I expect. He confronts me. He places demands on me. He inconveniences me. He wants to cleanse my temple. He wants to take control of my house. And I don't like it. 
He wants to take away my pride and my accomplishments. He'll change everything. And I don't want to let him. And I fight him every day. Like most men, I always warmed to the idea of rugged individualism. I like the moniker of a self-made man. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel manly. It makes me feel proud of what I have done and not proud of what he has done for me. This Jesus wants to take all that away from me. I'll have to give him credit for everything. I won't be able to be one of the guys anymore. I'll have to respect my wife. I'll have to honor her rather than making jokes about her when I'm out with the guys at at the golf course or at work. I'll have to admit I'm weak. He wants me to love the unlovable. And he wants me to love them rather than using them as an object of a joke to make me feel better, to make me feel better about my status or my position or my job or my position. He wants to take everything I worked for all my life away from me, all of my accomplishments, all the things I hang my pride on, my very identity. And he wants to take it all away so he can give me everything he accomplished and give me a new identity in him. So what am I to do with this, Jesus? There are basically three choices. The first, I can choose not to believe. Jesus claims to be God. We cannot say he was a great man or a prophet or an enlightened teacher. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis tells us there is no middle ground. He says, and I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept this Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Interesting, isn't it? You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus forces a choice. He tells us, if you don't believe in me, believe in the miracles that testify of me. The evidence is clear, and it requires a decision. Or, I can choose to oppose him. This seems a little counterintuitive. I believe in him, but I oppose him. Yet, I believe that's where most of us sit day in and day out. I know I do. James 2.19 says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. If you're sitting in this church today, down deep in your heart, you know there is a God. The problem is, we don't want to submit. All of us, even professed Christians, struggle here.
And so often when we're choosing sin, whether it's in our lifestyle choices, our commitment to our marriage, or other behaviors we engage in, it's accompanied by parallel statements. And you've heard them. I've said them. I'm not sure the Bible really says that. Or perhaps, I don't really agree with everything in the Bible. Or maybe it's, I'm questioning my faith. Why? Well, I believe it's because we're more interested in what we want than what we know. To choose sin is an opposition to faith in Jesus Christ. The two cannot coexist. One has to go. So we find it easier to soothe our conscience by saying, I'm questioning my faith, or I I don't really believe the Bible meant that. This is exactly what the Pharisees did. It's no different. Never mind the miracles. Never mind his teachings. Never mind about his character. This man must die because what he wants of me is not what I want. I do not want to surrender my will to his will. Then as now, those who would choose sin often wrap up the decisions in blankets of benevolence. After all, the Pharisees said, it's really for their own good. We have to protect their security. We have to protect the economic situation. We have to protect the nation. Or to update it a little bit to modern times, we have to protect their right to choose about their bodies to choose their life partners, to make decisions about their life, their right to personal fulfillment and happiness. Choice has become the idol we are to bow to. Listen to the news. Leaders and spokesmen will say, we need to protect them from divisive ideas. We need to protect them from behaviors and beliefs that may inconvenience them or call their behavior sin and so protect our own selfish interests and so hide our own sins, and so protect our right to choose. And we should be clear. When we choose to oppose Christ, we participate in the plot to kill him. Just like the Pharisees, our rebellion places Christ on the cross. It's a sobering thought. Finally, I can choose to obey him. This is the simplest choice. The body of evidence is overwhelming and conclusive. Jesus is Lord. This is the hardest choice. Self-interest is the ultimate obstacle to acknowledging self-evident truth. Jesus wants to destroy your temples, but he promises to give you something much greater than anything we can imagine. There are no neutral responses. Are you choosing to disobey? Well, there we stood in the driveway. Tyler poised for his shot. Steve holding the gaze of his son. A moment of silence passed. And at that moment, I instantly knew that Tyler had just been confronted with the most powerful, succinct, and penetrating question of all. In a second, his will would be laid bare before his father. Without a word, Tyler lowered the ball Tyler lowered the ball, turned, and walked into the house. He chose wisely. And what about you? What will you do with this Jesus? In that quiet, calm voice, Jesus is asking you, 
Are you choosing to disobey? In this moment, your will is laid bare before your Father. How will you respond? In the words of our pastor, we need to pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I don't always like the word I read, Lord, because it challenges me and it confronts me. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to submit my will to yours, Lord. That for me and my house, we would follow the Lord. And that you would be with us and that you would send the Spirit. And that we would turn over our lives to you. And you will do wonderful things with them. And we ask this in Christ our Lord. Amen.